world can be hard, cruel, and ugly. Trust me, it gets worse if you're hungry and thirst. Doesn't push you from position, last place to first. Can't build a foundation without having feet in the dirt. So I put in the work, grind harder than most. I don't chase accolades of the living, I'm facing a ghost. That's what makes me the GOAT. Depending on who you ask, my brother, whatever task Got it covered like a mask, guaranteed they can't see me at the open run Cause I cook competitors until they look well done Don't act like you don't know where I hail from I had to climb up out the trenches, sit on benches till my time had come Don't be mad at the player, be mad at the game Sneak this in the hating, that's a flag on the play Me falling off, huh, that'll be the day I'm like Bolt in the race, leave the track, flambe, it's the open run Depending upon the subject matter, I am the original slow learner, but I'll get there eventually, and that you can trust. And you could say the same for Giannis Ugo Atentacumpo. But before I get into that, let's get into this, and welcome to The Open Run with Will Strickland. That would be me. The Open Run is brought to you by the fine folks at Press. We are Press.net. I can be found across these rough interweb streets at W underscore Strickland and the number one on Twitter. Will Strickland and the number one on IG and across all streaming platforms where podcasts can be found. Slow learner. Don't take it out of context. I can recall a time when I had given myself an ethnic name for every country I was visiting. So if anyone asked my name, I could tell them. So in Ireland, I was Seamus O'Shaughnessy. I kid you not. I was dead serious when I was DJing in, in Europe in the summers when I was in university. Seamus O'Shaughnessy in Ireland. Or in the UK period. When I went to Italy, I was Pierluigi Verdecchia. I had a classmate by that name. I thought his name was cool. I'd never heard that name before. So I took that. When I was in Israel, my name was Herschel Dershowitz. Of the law firm of Dershowitz, Dershowitz, Dershowitz and Brown. Made that up. Just wilding out. Single serve friends loved it. If you don't know what a single serve friend is, watch Fight Club. This is somebody you meet and you're never going to see them again. So they become, like a single packet of sugar, a single serve friend. And in Greece, Cyprus and Crete, where I was spinning, my name was Thanos Olympiakos. And I thought I learned my lesson when I was in Germany, but I hadn't. My dear old dad, bless the dead, you know, he wasn't one for like earrings. and I mean, he was in the military. And I want, you know, I'm a college kid. I'm experimenting, not with drugs or anything, just a look. Like I did my hair like Trugoy the Dove from De La Soul. So I had one side of it like a flat top and the other side was twist. <laughs> And uh, I was DJing at this club in Ansbach, Germany, called the Queen's Club. And I wouldn't wear them in the house, but I had these magnet earrings or nose rings. I, I turned it into a nose ring. I put a nose ring in, but it was a magnet. Maybe I was too scared to get a hole in my nose. I don't know. But I had them in my ears, had them in my nose. I go DJ at this club, and I pick up the mic one night. Nose ring in. I say, everybody say ho! But instead of saying, everybody say ho, I said, everybody say and everybody started doing, uh, and I'm like, I started to laugh because they didn't know what was happening. But as I picked up the mic, the polarity between, I guess, the magnet and the microphone and the magnet in my nose pushed the backing of the, I guess, the nose ring down my throat. And I'm choking while I'm DJing. And eventually, one of the wait staff figured out that I was having an issue while I was DJing. And I eventually spit it out. But I like, like I was trying to get it out and I still had the mic in my hands and I'm like I'm the original slow learner never again did I put that nose ring back in my nose 
I kept DJ in that club, and that will forever be a ridiculous story. Giannis took eight years getting off the beaches of Athens and earning a reputation as a young man with potential playing in the Greek national basketball system and club teams since he was a child. His whole objective was to support his family, his father, mother who worked so hard. And he was drafted 15th, not in the lottery, but the Milwaukee Bucks, a place he couldn't even identify on the map. A place at one time that Giannis was so young and impressionable that when he came back to Milwaukee one time, he didn't have a ride. So he started running to the arena until some people who recognized him gave him a ride to the arena. That's how organic this kid is. It's just him. He doesn't, like, he didn't know any different. I mean, he has, he has some nice cars now, but he's telling you as his 19-year-old, he's 6'10", 6'11", 194 pounds. He was a baby. Barely spoke the language. Didn't know anybody. Cold in Milwaukee. And for eight years, he and one lone teammate would come over in the trade from the Detroit Pistons by the name of James Christian Middleton. They stuck it out together through all the bad years. Through all the bad years. Even with the, yeah, we're starting to get good years. It was a build. Now, there was a time when the hierarchy of the league was created and elevated through trial by fire. So when the Celtics... When the Sixers were dominating in the early 80s and the Celtics took over, they were going back and forth. There was really nobody else in the East that can take that crown. Eventually, the Celtics reigned supreme. The Sixers' time was done because they were more transient. They had Doc. They had Moses who come, came in for a couple of years. They got Charles Barkley. They never really elevated beyond the 1983 championship. I mean, they lost in the first round of the playoffs the next year if they won the championship in 83. Sound familiar? It happens. The Celtics dominated the early 80s. In the East, this team who changed their whole identity, a high-scoring, up-and-down type ball club behind Isaiah Lord Thomas III and the Detroit Pistons, they went through that trial by fire. And so they overcame the Celtics. Then they were the kings of the hill. And then there was a team in Chicago. They had to go through Boston and had to go through Detroit to become the kings of the hill, led by one Michael Jeffrey Jordan. So you get the idea. With free agency, that doesn't happen as much anymore because... Guys have the freedom to move as they like. They didn't have that back in the 80s. So when everybody says, oh, he would, this guy would never make it in the 80s, or this guy would. Yeah, if they had free agency, you wouldn't be saying that. But again, I digress. Because, hey, what are facts in the face of those pesky little motion thingies, right? At any rate, Giannis Antetokounmpo, a.k.a. Thanos, because he went full Thanos in Game 6 of the NBA Finals. So congratulations to the Milwaukee Bucks, first and foremost. The 2020-2021 NBA champion Milwaukee Bucks. 50 years since the artist formerly known as Ferdinand Lewis Alcindor Jr. and Oscar Robertson roamed the streets of Milwaukee and swept the then Baltimore Bullets, which are now the Washington Wizards, in the 1971 NBA Finals. It's a long time. It's a lifetime. Almost my lifetime. But they did it. Through hard work, through climbing, being... The original slow learners. They got something. Giannis went from a skinny kid to like this really bulked up, but like sinewy strong. Not like Shaq strong big, but sinewy strong. He got to adjust for inflation. What he was at 19 is not what he is at 26, 27. He's just now coming to his physical prime. Could this be the change in the guard? Did we crown a new king in the NBA? Don't know, but it looks like he figured it out. And before we move forward, he arguably had a top five all-time NBA Finals closeout game performance. Top five. And I'm with, you know what? It's not arguable. That's the top five. 
50 points, 14 rebounds, 5 blocks. Come on. And he probably got Chick-fil-A for life. If you saw the Instagram where he drove through the drive-thru and asked for a 50-piece, not 49, not 51, 50. There's some significance to that as he's riding with not only the Larry O'Brien trophy, but his Bill Russell, most valuable player of the finals trophy. That's the move, my man. And shouts out to Valerie Carter Daniels, one of three black female minority owners in the NBA. She's a part owner of the Bucks, and she's also on the, I think, the Board of Governors and a part owner of the Green Bay Packers, who won a ring. Uh, if you don't know her backstory, it's a great one. Go and look up Valerie Carter Daniels in Milwaukee. But back to the closeout games. I, I ranked them. I'm almost certain that there will be people who disagree. There will be people who will agree. And the people who will disagree will be wrong, of course, but that's neither here nor there. So I'm going to go from the bottom up and talk about the honorable mentions. 1958, game six, the first 20,000 point scorer in NBA history, Robert Lee Pettit dropped 50 on Bill Russell, who was playing on basically a broken leg, no excuses, dropped 50 on Russ, including I think the last 19 of 21 points in the game to close out. If you want to close out a team and you want to close out a team on the verge of being a dynasty, that's how you do it. You do it early. The one loss on Bill Russell's finals record. One. He has 11 rings, people. Wow. Other honorable mention. 1969, game seven. The logo, Jerry West. 42 points, 13 rebounds, 12 assists, and the lone person to ever win finals MVP on the losing team. There were overtures toward... He who shan't be named, getting it in 2015, but that didn't happen. Such is life. And the last honorable mention, 1998. Game six, the strip, the push-off, the flourish, faux fifth, the black cat, Michael Jeffrey Jordan. But let's go from there. At number five, I actually put Giannis's because of who he's facing in the finals and what he did to make sure it closed out. So Giannis was at number five for me. Like I said, 50 points. 14 rebounds, 5 blocks. He did it on both ends of the court. It could be higher on some list. I'm not partial to recency bias. So it may climb up years from now. But for me, right now it's number 5. At number 4, he who shan't be named, 2016, Game 7, triple-double, 27-11-11. But it wasn't just that. It was the whole series. It was who they were playing against and the history and the legacy and everything else that made it I mean, it could push it up to number two eventually for me. But right now, it's at number four. Um, I mean, the first person to ever lead in all five offensive stat categories for both teams happened in this series. The most crucial series against the 73-win team. There's not another team or player that has done that, beating a 70-plus win team in the finals. 30, 11, 9, 2, and 3. Disgusting. At three, 1970, game seven. The second coolest cat to ever grace the court, although George, my old position coach, George Gervin, might take umbrage with that. Well, Clyde Frazier. Now, that was the Willis-Reed game. And everybody remembers the Willis-Reed game because of the two shots Willis made and coming limping out the, 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 the locker room and Marv Albert saying, here's Willis. And, you know, he's coming through the tunnel. That's great, but they still had to win the game. You know, this is not a Disney movie, but it played like one because the team was inspired by Willis. But Clyde Frazier... Dropped 36, 7 rebounds, and 19 assists and helped them win a title over Wilt, Elgin Baylor, and Jerry West. I mean, stakes are high. Number two, game seven. The greatest winner in team sports history in overtime to beat the Lakers of Jerry West 
in Elgin Baylor. Win his fourth championship in Boston in a row, William Felton Russell. I'm going to say this once. In the overtime game, one overtime, still. 30 points, 40 rebounds, 4-0. Yup. And the number one, 1980, game six, the GOAT, Irvin Magic Johnson, 42-15-7, played all five positions. You probably heard the story again and again of how it all got started way back when. Yeah, the monument is all in your face. It's the GOAT, Magic Johnson. And if you disagree, if you agree, hit me up on my socials and let me know. Now, Stephen Jackson was interviewed and, you know, we've had issues back and forth. Stephen Jackson as the activist and supporting the George Floyd family because of his personal relationship, making sure his daughter was taken care of and bringing light to his murder by the police officer, Derek Chauvin, that helped spark a global movement. So on that, he gets stats. But he went on television recently and said that the Milwaukee Bucks were a super team. And not to try and discredit other teams that had quality players and call them super teams. For that reason, I understood what he was saying. I don't think he articulated well enough for people to get, okay, I get it. Or maybe they didn't want to get it. Because there's a narrative spun around that, that there's a certain person that helps to create super teams all of a sudden. As if Jerry West, Elgin Baylor, and Wilton Norman Chamberlain weren't a super team. But alas, I digress again. I think that's his point in that... You know, those guys had three Hall of Famers on their teams. This other guy we were talking about, the two guys that he joined with in Cleveland, and one guy was already there. They had the worst record in the NBA the three years he was there before he was champion name showed up. How many times they blanked the playoffs? No, they made the lottery three years in a row. The other guy they brought in from Minnesota, never made the playoffs, had good stats. All-star, whole nine. Empty calorie. Shows up in Cleveland, changes the fortunes, but that doesn't mean he, it was a super team. Because they weren't a super team leading their teams in Cleveland and Minnesota before they arrived with that guy. Now all of a sudden they are. We know what the, the impetus is here. And so you have to articulate that better. Giannis got a guy in Chris Middleton who had been with him. So there's something to be said for consistency. And now he's the multiple time all-star. He's now an Olympian. We'll get to that a little bit later. And Drew Holiday, former all-star. One of the top defenders in the league. He had quality players around him. And three guys in an all-defensive team this year. In Brooke Lopez, Drew Holiday, and Giannis, uh, this whole super team thing irks me a little bit, and I think it's stupid. Because at the end of the day, you still have to go out and play the games, and you can have all the talent in the world, Wilt, Jerry West, Elgin Baylor, and still lose. And did that a lot. It happens. But something else that stuck out to me was when Giannis got on the podium, and I know, yeah, when you're the champ, you could say what you want to say. Do your thing. Giannis said that they'd want it the right way, the hard way. Dame Lillard is somewhere in Tokyo thinking, man, you need to stop. What is the right way if you have an ultimate goal? Is it the right way according to what people believe it should be? Or however you got there, whether you went through the bumps and the bruises and the trial by fire that I talked about earlier in the 80s with those teams before free agency kicked in and people were moving around a bit so you couldn't have the same rivalries, you didn't play against the same teams, you have to go through those same teams. Even though for years, you know, Toronto had to go through Cleveland, and he was champion name. So maybe there's a more recent application of that. I think that would be the closest thing. And maybe you could say that Milwaukee had to go through Toronto a couple of times, and a couple of different teams, and, 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 and Miami, even though they... I, I can't even put that in the same category. Can't put it in the same category because it wasn't the one team that terrorized them. It's just they didn't have the right pieces yet. Drew Holiday was a difference maker, no doubt. Anthony Leon Tucker, 
difference maker, no doubt. Pat Connaughton, difference maker, no doubt. Dare I say Jeff Teague? Nah, spot minutes. Let me let me not get out of control. So I don't really believe in the whole right way, hard way. The goal is to win a championship. If you get there, you get it. You know, it's not guaranteed. Ask the 2016 Golden State Warriors. Ask the 1970 Los Angeles Lakers. Ask the 2004 LA Lakers. Shaq, the late great Kobe Bean Bryant, Carl Malone, Gary Payton, Mitch Richmond, five Hall of Famers on that squad against just a ragtag bunch from Detroit who played together. It is not guaranteed. So what is the super team? What does it matter? You still have to go and play the game. My young cousin Vezo, shouts out Vezo, posed a question to me about Giannis though. That thought was really interesting. As a result of this championship, is Giannis now top five all time at his position? Is he a first ballot Hall of Famer? Well, he didn't ask that second question. I asked that. And I'm starting to think about that because he won most improved player. He won the finals MVP, won all-star MVP, won defensive player of the year, and two regular season MVPs. And by the time he's 26, damn. I mean, he's one of five foreigners to have ever won finals MVP, starting with the original Nashi Nigerian, Akeem Abdul Olajuwon. Then you had the great Timothy Theodore Duncan from the Virgin Islands, even though it's a U.S. territory. They called it foreign, whatever. You go from there, you have William Anthony Parker. You know him better as Tony Parker. Dirk Verna Nowitzki in Dallas, 2011. And this year with Giannis. I have to think about that because two of those guys are on that list. And Duncan and, and Nowitzki as top players at the power forward position. Who did Giannis knock out? If I had to rank him right now, and to be totally honest, of course, it's Tim Duncan at the top. Uh, I could say Dirk. And again, again, I, I don't want to be a prisoner of the moment. So I'm going to give it to Dirk for longevity and what he's done. Carmelo, I got to. Then it comes down to Kevin Garnett, Kevin McHale, and Charles Barkley. Charles Barkley is easily the most unique player they ever played in the game to me. Because of his size, he shouldn't have led anything in, in the league as far as rebounding, and he did. He was just the most unique player I've ever seen play the game. So between Barkley, Garnett, it's hard for me to choose against Kevin Maurice Garnett. McHale, probably on the outside looking in. So is Barkley. And now you throw Giannis up in there. If you agree, if you disagree, hit me up. But one thing you should know, as Akeem Olajuwon said, because they come from the same Yoruba tribe in Nigeria. The way his name is spelled, Adendakumpo, in Nigeria, actually stands for the crown that's returned from overseas. And we want you to return for more of the open run with Will Strickland on the other side of this. you more of what you asked for is the open run with Will Strickland in conversation my man coach Tony McIntyre what's up coach how you doing trying to maintain sir you looking good like the beard hey we we try it's a COVID beard I told uh told all my players I'd grow it till we play our first game so it's been over 15 months that's that's crazy and I I you know I'm gonna hook you up with some beard bomb my people they got you I, I like it. I like it. I got to get into a barber shop and get get a, a little shape up and stuff. But been traveling so much, haven't had time. We're definitely going to get into that. But and what I do on every episode when I have guests is have them run their resume. So, sir, if you would please run your resume, tell us who Tony McIntyre is. Uh, head coach right now at Orangeville Prep in uh, Orangeville, Ontario. 
director of basketball operations. Uh, I'm going to say one of the best prep schools in North America. Developed a lot of great uh, high school, college, and MBA talent out of there. Created uh, Bounce Basketball, CIA Bounce, AAU. I've uh, been coaching and, and running a program for uh, over 32 years. So, wow. you know, coach, coach, uh, you know, as, as my secondary and then uh, father, grandfather, husband uh, as, as my number one job. Oh, I love that. No doubt. And, and, and you talked about CIA bounce from AAU's perspective because you got to start somewhere before they become the college talents, the NBA talents, the, the international talents. Tell me a little bit about that history. You said 32 years strong. What got you into it and why you? So it, it, it actually goes way back. Um, I, I grew up obviously playing sports and, and I played basketball, hockey, lacrosse. Um, I chose to play hockey all the way through into high school and, and lacrosse as well. I got injured when I was uh, 18, you know, became disgruntled with, with the game of hockey, uh, trying to rehab and, and, and not being able to get back to where I was. And, and I sat back. I, I grew up with a... a in a single family. So I, I was raised by my mother uh, with my little brother and uh, really just sat back and had a lot of time during my rehab uh, to reflect on, you know, all the great coaches that I had and all the, mm -hmm. all the coaches that essentially filled that void for, for needing and wanting to have a father. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I said to myself one day, it's like, man, I just want to be able to give back to, to some kids uh, in a way that I felt that I received that type of love from a coach. And, right. and it was more than coaching. It was seeing the interaction with their families and how they were. And I think, I think that really helped me to become a man when, when you really look at it of saying like, man, I, I don't want my kids to ever go through what, what I went through in terms of, you know, not having both parents and um, not having a father sit at a game. Uh, although my mother was at all my games, it still was like just, just watching your teammates walk out of, of a gym or an arena uh, with their whole family was was something where it's like, man, one day I'm going to do that. And it's it seems like such a minor goal or or something so small, but it was kind of my driving force behind why I wanted to start coaching. So why would you, why would you say that that's minor? Because again, you know, I had both of my parents were alive at the time when I was going through school, but for whatever reason, and I this stuck with me for a long time. Like I thought, I just had this resentment toward them for a, a long time that. You know, they weren't able to come to my games, whatever the case might be. I remember my recruiting process. I didn't want to let anyone know I was going to do it all on my own. Like I was I was really angry inside because of that, that my senior night, because they were in Europe, my senior night, they couldn't be there. So I was there by myself when we do senior night in, in college and then, you know, graduation and stuff. They were back, but like I was by myself. So I've always held this kind of me against the world mentality and I'm like, I want to do something much like yourself and giving back to something that had given to me, which was the game of basketball. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it was, I, I say minor because I never, I never really had time as a kid to sit down and think about, hey, am I missing something? And, right. and I think everything you do is, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. It's like, yeah. you, you think about it, it's like, oh, I remember that time or I remember when, you know, you're getting a ride with your coach to a game and his son's in the front seat and they're having a conversation. You're kind of just like you're, you're third wheeling it, so to speak, it, you know, in the back seat watching this interaction. Now you're a part of it. But it's like, hold on. I never got to do that. Right. And, and so it was like it seems minor because I never missed it. But when you look back at it, it was something that, you know, 
as all parents do, you don't want your kids to have to go through some of the struggles and some of the things that you did as, as, as a kid. And, and you want them to kind of start where you feel like you left off and not, you know, recreate or make the same mistakes that, that you made. And, right. and so you always want better. So I think that's why I really looked at it. And, and there was a couple of coaches in particular that were just like really stand up guys and they'll tell you how it is and they coach the crap out of you. But at the same time, you know, they were there to put, put their hand over your shoulder and say like, Hey, let's get back at it tomorrow. Or, Hey, pick your head up. It's not that bad after a loss, you know, it's, mm. it's one game. And I, as a, I, I still am, I'm a passionate person. I hate losing with a passion. I, it, you know, I, I think as I get older, I'm starting to look at things with a little bit of a different perspective. If, you know, in hockey, it's kind of like who, who's in the other Jersey is an enemy. And, right. and you want to, you want to go out there and you want to crunch them into the boards and you want to fight them and you want to, you want to score and you want to win and, and you don't want to talk to them. And, and I think now you're starting to, you know, see like, as you get older, it's like, man, they, they just trying to do the same thing we're trying to do. You want to beat them when the clock's on, but you got to learn to appreciate that they're on the same journey and the same pathway and trying to achieve the same things as you, as you get older. No doubt. And I think that, you know, it's so important that you dedicated 32 years of your life to this and, and giving back in that way. And and now you're a part of the uh, EBYL, if I'm not mistaken. EYBL. Um, what is that exactly? So we were the first team in Canada to get invited into the EYBL. And it's it's basically the, I'm going to call it the MBA for high school kids. Okay. And and it's uh, it's put on by Nike. It's it's the top, you know, let's call it 40 teams uh, in North America. Uh, and, and you go through a circuit of several stops uh, throughout the year from, from April, May, June, with, uh, and it culminates with essentially your your championship weekend at Peach Jam, which is kind of the pinnacle of, of your AAU career. Um, when you get to play there and be in front of all those coaches, you look down the sideline and, you know, there's 100, 200 coaches sitting there and just, you know, you're in the spotlight. It's, it's the show uh, for a high school kid. And it's a place that, you know, everyone strives and wants to be. Well, I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about Peach Jam a little bit later, but you talked about your family because I think it's for you to do this for 32 years and have to give so much to other kids and other families. How important is it to have your family and support from them to do what you do? I'm going to say this, um, you know, the, the not enough credit goes to my wife. Um, you know, when, when I first started coaching, I was 19, 20 years old. And, and she was looking at me like, what do you want to do this for? And I was coaching three, four, five teams at a time. I wasn't home. She hated it. And uh, I, I think it was one day that her mother sat down uh, with her and said, well, if, if this is something that he's passionate about and this is something that he wants to do, then it's something that you should learn to support and go and go along for the ride to see what it is that he loves so much and be a part of it. And this is, you know, our kids were really young and, and in the back of my mind, I wanted to become the best coach possible. So when it came time to coach them, I had kind of all the tools in, in, in the tool belt. And mm -hmm. uh, that never really happened in terms of having all the tools because I you have to learn all the yeah. time and, and it's ever changing. But it's, uh, you know, I, I think it starts with her. Um, I think you have to have a good support structure. I think if if your wife or your girlfriend's not on the same page with the amount of time that we spend in the gym, that's that's doomed from the start. And, and that's that's my number one advice I give to a lot of young coaches is make sure that the goals and objectives are clear at the beginning. But 
you know, my family, like I said, we were, we, we grew up in a gym. Uh, I remember when, you know, my daughter was born, we went from the hospital straight to the gym. Um, you know, we never even made a stop home, um, you know, and, and it's, it, it's crazy because I just think that your basketball IQ is really developed by watching, seeing, and doing. And, mm. and I think by all my kids, you know, living in the gym, whether they were on the team or not, just seeing it, you know, shooting around on the side, listen to me yelling and, and, and coaching and, and teaching. I think that it sticks subconsciously as well. And I think, you know, that that's become our culture in our family is, is be in the gym, be around basketball as much as humanly possible. And, and, you know, as I get older, I try to create breaks. Right. Um, but, you know, I think after every single year, any coach that, you know, puts everything they have into it, I say, I'm going to quit every year. Right. <laughs> I'm and, done with this. I'm done with this. And about listen, a week later, you're like, no, 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 I got to get back at this. Let's you go. know what that is? Yeah. It's the same thing you talk about your wife. When you say you're married to the game and you can't divorce it, I signed the prenup. I'm stuck. Yeah. And right. It's like, you just love it. You yeah. love the pain and you love the, the, the joy. And it's like, you hate it when you're down, uh, but then you just know that you just got to work a bit harder to get back up. And, and there's, there's so much you get, not only from the satisfaction of winning, but watching the kids and the kind of the ancillary joy that is given by their parents or their friends and their family. You see that you saw that you started at a place when you talked about your goals and then you achieve this thing. Like there's, that's my sole reason. Honestly, yeah. like I set out to get one kid a scholarship. I said to myself when I set my goals, because when, when I started coaching, everyone told me no kids from Brampton are going to go play division one basketball. No kids mm -hmm. from Brampton are going to make it to the NBA. No kid. And, and all I kept hearing is no, no, no. And, and it was like, man, my goal is to get one kid a scholarship. And, and I exceeded everyone's expectations at that point. And, and it was like, what's that? What's that? No, no. I was going to ask, who was the first kid you got a scholarship and to what school? Shoot. I, I, I'm honestly going to say like our first, kids that kind of came through i mean they went off to prep school you know that group with melvin Ejim, iowa state uh, grandy glaze when he committed to unlv you know the uh, my older son brandon going to southern connecticut ante Cossack. like our older group of guys were kind of like that first group tristan thompson kind of was in that within that first group because he started being recruited you know in the ninth grade mm. um so it was it was it was kind of crazy, but I just remember always going to a program that I was with, no names mentioned, and saying, "I want to take a ki these kids to the states for AAU." And they're like, "Man, you're wasting your money. You're wasting your time. No kids from Brampton are going to get this." And I, I I'll never forget it to today. I, I said, three strikes are out. I'm going to ask three times." And on the third time, they said, "No." I said, "All right, here here comes bounce basketball." And, right. and I said, "I started my own thing up, and we headed to the states and." At the time, we had a team that was like two losses, you know, 180 wins uh, with Tristan and Dylan. And in the summer, you know, we had Corey Joseph for a bit. We had Pat Donnelly. We had like we had all the big name players back then, Jabs, Newby, everybody, you know, and these guys are telling us no kids will ever get a scholarship. And you look back and, you know, a couple are in the NBA and all of them went to play Division One basketball. And it was kind of on and popping at that point. It was like, OK, I did it once. I'm going to do it again and do it again and do it again. And, and now it's, it's my expectation is that, and I know it's unreasonable, but you know, even where I'm at at prep school right now, we're averaging eight to nine division one scholarships a year. And, 
everyone said we couldn't do that. We couldn't have a prep school in Canada that would compete with the U.S. So it's like, I just love hearing you can't do it, and then I'm going to do it. No doubt. That, that's love, and that is definitely passion. And when you speak about love, you spoke about your older son, Brandon, but the two that people may be most familiar with are Tyler Ennis and Dylan Ennis. And I want to ask you about the draft process. The draft is coming up this week. And what that was like for those guys coming out of different programs. If I'm not mistaken, Dylan went to my alma mater for at least a year at Rice. Yeah. Um, finished up at Oregon. And then Tyler was all everything at Syracuse when he was there. Can you talk about those different draft processes and what that's like for young men who are going from not having in college to possibly going and getting millions to play a game they played for free for years? Yeah, I think I'm going to kind of take it back to like one step before that and then get into that because I think, you know, for, for any young guys that are watching this, I think their two journeys are, are completely different and everybody's journey is different. And, right. uh, you know, there's not two that are exactly the same. Um, to get drafted, you got to make all the right decisions and you got to be at the right place at the right time. It's, you know, people say it's like winning a lottery. It, it literally is like winning a lottery. Um, but, with, with Dylan, Dylan did go to Rice, um, you know, and, and I think the difference between Dylan and Tyler, um, you know, growing up, I think talent-wise, they were the same. I think, you know, they, they both were past first point guards at one point. They both liked to see their teammates be successful. And, you know, the game's changed quite a bit from that now. And you start to see it a little bit, though, with Chris Paul in, in the playoffs this year is like, you know, that ability to pass and, and find guys and just be that that general on the on the court is needed. But I think the NBA got away from that for a little while. But Tyler growing up, and, and I'm going to show the differences between the two, is Tyler got to be Tyler for his whole life. Who mm -hmm. he was, what he did, and who wanted him to play for them, accepted who and what he was. Whereas Dylan always had to change who and what he was. So, you know, growing up, he was a past first point guard. He left, went to school in New York City at Wings Academy in, in, in the Bronx, New York, and they wanted him to be score only. And, mm. you know, just that that head down, get to the basket guy. And then he transferred and went to Lake Forest Academy just off the rigors of, you know, living in Long Island, but going to school in, in the Bronx is, is quite a haul for anyone that, you know, has, has lived in New York, taking that subway for a couple hours in the morning and at night. So he goes to Lake Forest Academy and they want him to kind of do both. And then, um, you know, his, his recruiting, he, he had a late growth spurt. So he, he was pretty small in high school and then grew in grade 12, went to Rice, set all kinds of assist records at Rice, you know, helped, helped turn that team around in its freshman year. Uh, and then they ran into some, some problems, you know, with the coaching staff and, and, right. and a bunch of stuff went on there that we won't talk about, but no. uh, you know, transferred to Villanova where he thought he was going to be able to go in there and, and, and be that scoring guard. But then, you know, just just as recruiting is, you know, they got Ryan Archie Diakono there. So, you know, that ball right. is in his hands and now you're playing off the ball. So it's not what you thought it was going to be. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas Tyler goes into Syracuse, Michael Carter Williams gets drafted in, in, in the lottery the year before. There's no point guard, no scholarships left. He's the, he's the only show in town. And so mm. it was do or die. It was, you right. know, you're, you're, you're thrown into the fire. You're either going to, you're either going to kill this or you're going to look really bad and they're going to look terrible for not having any, anyone else on that roster behind you. But it was a perfect scenario. Whereas Dylan had to fight and scratch Dylan, mm. you know? And so I think the, the real lesson is, is, you know, really when through the recruiting process, find the people that love you, want you for exactly who and what you are 
Don't try to be someone and try to do things that you're not naturally gifted with. And I keep telling kids is, you know, your success is, is really relying on demonstrated ability of what that one thing you do well is. And if you do that one thing well, they'll find you. Isn't that like a relationship, though? It is. Like you it go is. to the club when you're young, you go to the club and you see a girl and young lady and she might be, you know, scantily clad, whatever the case might be. You're looking at her and you're like, I like her. I want her. And you go and get her. And then you try to make her a housewife. Off, off looks. Right. And you're looking at her and you're going, oh, she has this little dress on. So you assume all these yeah. things, the young person. But then once you get her and she becomes your woman, you you guys are together. You want her to dress up like she's a monk or she's like, whoa, 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 whoa. you liked her for that. Don't try to change her now. Yeah. Right. That's not for you to do. That, and it's the same exactly thing that happens it, yeah. with these schools. Right. Is that. And that's it, what's it, supposed it, to happen in the recruiting process. It's, yeah. It's the dates. You're supposed to right. figure out. You know, do we like each other for who, what we really are? Or, you know, we, we all say it as basketball guys. You walk in the gym and say, oh, that guy passed the look test. He, right, he looks right. like a baller. Right, right. And then you get talking to him or, you know, or, or a year down the road, you realize, man, he, he really fooled me. Or Yeah, he was just or, an athlete, but, he, you know, he, look, he looked apart. Yeah. There's and, a lot of guys that come out in a full Toronto Raptors uniform to the park and look like they can play. And then you realize they're not that they're, good. They're not, well, I, and it, and you got to flip that too. You got to flip it on the coaches, right? Mm. They, they're professional at what they do. They're going to tell you what you want to hear, just just mm. like the dating, right? You know, they're going <laughs> to they're going to show you things you want to see, right? <laughs> and then they're going to flip it up, you know. Right. And and there's very few that you know, and the, and then they're always going to try to find something that's better than you, right? And so you got and, and and you got to take that person, that, you know, you got to take that person on a date. When, when they bring yeah. that person on a visit, they're going to say, hey, take him out for dinner. Make sure he has a good time. Do this, do that. And he tried to take your spot. And so right. it's and, like, man. At got- every level, it's like that, though, right? Yeah, when you think is. about when you're going on your visits at college or when you're trying to take food off a grown man's plate in the NBA or somewhere yeah. overseas, they're like, okay, you're the new boy here. So while they not, might not be hazing like they used to be when I was, I went to a training camp before and Antoine Carr, I was his rookie. I'll put it like that and I'll leave it at that for now. But <laughs> the draft process, like you said, it was different for both of them uh, going in. I can't remember the year that uh, Tyler went in and Dylan went in, but can you talk about those processes real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll, t- I'll talk about Tyler's because his happened first. So 2000, um, 2014 was his draft year. Mm-hmm. Um he, he played at obviously Syracuse and, and they went, they, they had a great season that year. I think they started off the season 25 and 0, uh, yeah. had some huge wins, went to uh, March Madness, lost in the second round. His, his draft process kind of started, you know, in April, right after they lost, uh, was trying to really select, you know, who, who his agent was going to be. And, and that was a pretty easy one at the time for us because Mike George was, uh, already Anthony Bennett's uh, agent, and and I had started CIA bounce with him. We merged our two programs together, so you know he was he was in the game for for a year. He was with XL Sports, uh, Jeff Schwartz as well, which was you know number one company uh, in terms of sports management at the time. So you know he signed with an agent right away. We we knew that the Raptors had the twenty first pick, and it would be hard to to pass him up uh, with the season that he had. So we entered the draft right away. And, and that was, you know, that, that was probably the toughest, the easiest decision to make based on the season he had and the toughest one because of how Bayheim uh, reacted and, and, and how he was. Right. Uh, but, you know, we've, we've passed that and, and 
you know, Jim and I talk all the time and, but it, it was, it was a difficult to, discussion to have because he didn't feel Tyler was ready. I obviously mm. wanted him back for another season after the season they had, but he signed with an agent. They go into a, a pre-draft uh, camp, which is usually set up by your agency, which, you know, they, they align you with, with trainers and physiotherapists and, and, you know, lifting guys and workout guys. And it, it, it's a pretty rigorous preparation. And, yes. you know, Tyler's was in Long Island, New York, and, uh, you know, there was a couple other guys that were there with him, you know, uh, Jordan Clarkson, uh, who him and Tyler are like best friends now. And, and they went through that, that draft process together and a couple other guys that were in that house and, and they work out every day. And, mm. and then from that house through those workouts, there's a team workouts that are, uh, um, aligned where you fly to the different cities and, you work out for each of those teams. So, you know, some guys, you know, if you're watching the media now, that would be like, you know, AJ Lawson recently worked out with the Toronto Raptors. And I think for a Toronto kid, when you get a Toronto workout, it's probably the same for a New York kid when they get a New York workout. But it's like, you kind of always think like, yo, I hope I get that workout. Like, I just want to mm -hmm. come in there and, and have a chance to play for my hometown team. So you fly all over the country to all the different teams uh, that want uh, to schedule workouts with you. You go through that and then, you know, that ends, you know, pretty close to the draft. So throughout your workouts, you could could be working out for a couple of days and then fly out for a visit, come back, keep working out, uh, fly out for another visit and, and so on and, and so forth. And then usually uh, most agencies have kind of like their pro day where they, they bring in all the NBA scouts or GMs uh, to watch you work out uh, in your draft camp. Mm. And, and so you know, you have that. And then in the middle of all of that, there, there's usually the NBA combine too. And it's changed over the years um, to, to more of an invite only, but you know, they, they used to do that. And, and then uh, you'd work out, go through an interview process in the hotels and meet with different teams. And, and they, that's, that's kind of what like you and I were talking about is like that dating process right. of seeing if, you know, from a personality and professional aspect, there, there's a fit there. And, and then, from there, there's kind of, you know, I, I go through it every year where like there's a lot of background checking going on of yeah. who and what each of these players are. So, you know, all these NBA teams are calling, you know, high school coaches, college coaches, um, high school teachers, guidance counselors, you know, they, they go pretty in depth with who they reach out to and they try to kind of just pull the strings at, at what type of person this this guy is and what type of family he's from and who's around him and who's going to be around him uh, if, if he was drafted. So it, it's, you know, a pretty rigorous process. Um, mm. and, and then it culminates with, with going to the draft and, uh, and that process in itself is, is, is quite an experience. And, and I remember that, you know, Tristan uh, watching Tristan's on TV uh, and then being at Anthony Bennett's, um, mm. you know, sitting front row right beside his table and knowing he was going to go number one. I remember looking up at a light in, in the Barclays Center and, and and praying to that light that I want to be back there uh, with more kids so that each of those families could, uh, you know, feel this experience. Yeah, experience it's something that you only watch on TV as, as a basketball guy. Like For me, it was like, I, I, you know, I watch the draft every year, but I never dreamed of being there. And, right. and, and I never set a goal to be there. My goal was always just, you know, scholarship, scholarship, scholarship. And then there's so many factors that go in after that, whether you get drafted or not. So I remember praying to that light and, and, you know, next thing you know, the next year I'm sitting there with uh, 
another number one pick, uh, Andrew Wiggins. And then my son went, Tyler went 18th. And so it, it was, it was pretty crazy. And I remember looking back at that same light saying, let's, let's do, let's run it back. Let's, let's right. get it again. And I was back there again with, you know, Thon and Jamal and then back there again with Dylan Brooks. And then it was, it's, it's been, it's been a crazy uh, experience, but uh, so that, that was kind of Tyler's Dylan's was pretty similar except for, it's hard not to watch the media. It's hard not to watch the draft boards uh, when you're going through this process. And it's hard not to watch ESPN and listen to all the analysts talk about what they think is going to happen in the draft and where and when. So Tyler's was, you know, he was predicted anywhere between four and, and 20, uh, depending mm-hmm. on who you, who you talk to and, and, and who you were listening to. Whereas Dylan's, um, you know, he wasn't on the draft board, but, uh, we knew that we were going to have to kind of take a different route of either being a, a second round pick or or go undrafted. And, you know, the later into the second round you go, you kind of hope you go undrafted so that you have your own options and and, right. and your own uh, plan that you can enact at that point. And, and that would start with, you know, after the draft, going to summer league and, and hooking on a team and trying to to have it. And, and you know, Dylan played for Oklahoma, uh, OKC for a little bit uh, down in the Florida summer league. And then flew the next day to Las Vegas and played for Golden State. Uh, and I think that summer he set the scoring record for for the NBA Summer League as well. So, you know, then, then he had decisions to make. You know, does he take a, a two-way contract? Does he take a G League contract? Or does he take guaranteed money and go overseas and, and, and try to get, you know, some stuff in the bank? And I think, you know, a lot of kids will will go the G League route and, and, and think, but, you know, I think, if you're good enough, you could go to Europe, put some some serious coin in the bank, and you can still come back here and play. And uh, we see, and we definitely see that the new world order in basketball is changing. That the quality of the game around the world is getting much more, much better. The salaries might not be the same, especially if you're going to different countries to play. But you can make a million, two million dollars a year U.S. Playing the game and playing a shorter season too, and not 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 have to worry about kind of ha- and there's so many factors that go into that in terms of you know the the taxes, um, your, oh, yeah. you know, your house, your car, um, who pays your agent, their their percentage of your income, um, which is all different. And you know you could you could bank a lot more being in Europe as as you know making a couple million and, and putting that in the bank versus making a, a couple million and paying half in taxes and living in L.A. paying you know, $6,000 a month rent and crazy stuff. Right. So there's a lot of options. And I think more kids need to really open their eyes to those options and, 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 and look at that rather than, you know, kind of struggling through some of these things. I think Europe has always been looked down upon, but I think, you know, if, if you're about playing this game for a long time, you can play there for a long time and you can make some good money. Well, there's only one option is to come back for more. With my guest, Coach Tony McIntyre, CIA Bounce, Orangeville Prep, on the other side of this. You're now listening to the sounds of the Open Run with Will Strickland, where the lecture is conducted from the mic into the speaker in conversation. My man, Coach Tony McIntyre. Coach, appreciate you being on, man. No problem. I appreciate you having me on. I, I like talking about this stuff. It's what we do, right? Absolutely. What we do. Now, you spoke about Peace Jam earlier, 
and you've been traveling with your team and your family. What is it like traveling during COVID and having the trust of these parents with their young people going across the country and kind of trying to find their dreams and then other things you were doing along the way? Yeah, I mean, it's been crazy. You know, 15 months, no basketball. Um, I'll be honest, we, we, we sat back as a, as a program and, and said like, Hey, we're not going to play until we're allowed to play. Mm. Um, and you know, with, within two weeks of when, you know, the open recruiting season started in July, we were like, man, let, let's see how many kids we can put together that their parents will let travel. Uh, mm. how many are vaccinated versus unvaccinated, what the risk is going to be for us, where we're going. We threw, we threw a couple rosters together. You know, I think some of our talent obviously, you know, couldn't travel or, or you know, their parents weren't comfortable with it. But to, to get back out there, um, you know, and, and to have a group of kids that for the most part were all vaccinated was almost like, man, if if we're vaccinated and we still can't do this thing, are we ever going to be able to? And, right. and it's like, you know, I, I think that's a whole nother debate, but that, that kind of gave us some of the assurance that, you know, we could get down there and, and my wife always laughs at me and she says, I'm the COVID cops. And so I knew <laughs> I, I knew I knew I was gonna be able to keep our guys safe. And, right. and they they probably hated it. Every second I was like, put your mask back on, put your mask back on. And right. like we're in the gym with you know teams from all over the country. Um now the good the good part to it is obviously you have to COVID test before you leave Canada. So we knew we were we were good leaving. We flew there, we COVID tested when we got there um, on our own. Uh, which was good. Um, everyone came back, you know, negative uh, for COVID there. Uh, and then every other day through the uh, EYBL, we had to do mandatory COVID testing uh, through Nike. And, mm. and so we knew every other day that our guys were good. And then we took two more COVID tests at the completion of that. And then the one that we had to take to fly back to Canada as well. So for us, it was like, we, we, we knew exactly where we were within, you know, 24 hours all the time. And we were probably one of the few programs that actually didn't have kids that got COVID. And, uh, you know, we were in a hotel kind of, you know, about 45 minutes out from everybody else and no one else was in that hotel. So there wasn't very much interaction with other people. And, you know, we were careful with the restaurants and things like that. So, you know, for us, it, it, it was a calculated risk. It was well worth it because, uh, you know, the, the kids got to play. Um, mm-hmm. the, the downside to it was we never got to practice. I literally met five of the players that I've never seen in my life at the airport. Wow. Uh, and, and then we get off a plane and have to play. And right. so we're, we're trying to figure things out on the run. We're taking timeouts down 20, trying to execute an inbounds play that we talked about. And now it's really happening. And so we, we got absolutely obliterated the first game by 40. And mm. I'm trying to explain to the kids who kind of got their heads down, like, hold on, you walking in here playing against the kids that are the best in the world at your age that have not stopped playing. They, they've mm. been practicing. They had a full high school season. They had practices leading up to this. They've been together. And some of these teams been together since they were young. Right. And so, you know, you, you look at it and say, hey, go out there and, and, and just work. We're happy to be here. We have nothing mm. to lose and everything to gain. And they got everything to lose. And, and nothing to gain because if they lose to us, it looks like, man, you just lost to a bunch of guys that ain't played in two years. Right. And, and so we ended up winning a couple games and, and and it got progressively better. We lost our last game in a five overtime game by one. Wow. Um, but we competed and we competed with guys that, that played pretty hard. 
could have we put a better squad on the floor? Yeah. But I think these guys really, you know, bonded and came together in a short period of time to, to, to take some important lessons back and, and, and get to see, you know, where, where they're at and where they need to be, uh, how hard they work and how hard they need to work. And, and, and then also get to see kind of the hype that's uh, around a lot of these guys with, with these new rules and all these college coaches in attendance. But the, the one thing that I noticed a little bit more was, was more, I'm going to call it business around. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with the new NIL rules and things like that, you know, there, I think there was a lot more cameras and a lot more filming and a lot more promotion of individual players inside and outside of, of the event we were in. I mean, there was a lot of things going on there in what you just said, from being daddy chaperone and the burden of leadership to make sure those kids were safe. And along the same lines, counting victory and all those losses, like what did you gain from this experience and then seeing the new landscape? Mikey Williams, one of the top recruits in the 2024 class, just signed with XL. You talk about XL Sports Management, Jeff Schwartz, and when uh, Mike George was there as well at one time. And here's a kid who's, what, 15, 16 years old, signed with a sports agency because of the NIL rules. He has like 5 million followers on Instagram. You have young players who are going to be in that in similar situations. You notice the business of it. And it's always to some people. The AAU has always been a business, whether it be coaches jockeying to be college coaches or whatever the case might be, however you get there, right? Whatever they do. And now the business of it is more important because now these young people have an opportunity to earn from their name, image, and likeness. How do you guide your young people if you if you started talking to them about that at all in, in this new landscape? I, I definitely, I mean, you have to talk about it now. If you mm-hmm. don't, then you look crazy for not. And, and I think, uh, you know, people are starting to, to obviously they've always been monetizing uh, every opportunity that they can. And, you know, you, you look at the ball family and, and you look at a lot of these other, you know, Facebook shows and, and, and things. It's, they've always, you know, started doing it. And, and it's become something that at every AAU event or high school event, you just see a film crew behind. You see documentaries, you see TV shows, you see you know, family shows. Um, so, you know, for, for the NCAA to finally do it, I think, you know, you have to sit down with the kids and understand and, and explain to them what their worth is. And I think that's, you know, from, from way back, uh, you know, in college basketball, from, you know, the O'Bannons even of, of understanding what their worth was in a video game in terms of likeness. Um, I, was a part of that, I was a part of that class action suit. Yeah. So, so you look at that and you say like, you've always known what your worth is. And I think to the common person, they say, well, you know, shut up and play basketball and, right. and, and uh, you, you got a scholarship, so you should be happy, but they don't understand what the, the, the numerical value of what these players bring to the table for those schools in terms of TV revenue, ticket sales. And now, you know, you could add merchandising because you can't go into a, a school bookstore and buy, you know, a, a, a Jersey of a player. Legally, anyways, right. um, you know, you could probably go to an off-campus store and, and get one made or whatever. But now, you know, these kids can can make some money off their name, image, and likeness. They can, you know, start to work with with companies. You know, I I, I read something. It wasn't basketball related, but I, I read something about a football player that hasn't thrown a pass yet in, in, in college football. Right. With millions and millions and millions of dollars of 
of, of revenue coming in already. Um, yeah. And so from, I think he's from um, University of Wisconsin. Yeah, I, I, I don't know who he is, but I, I, I was so, reading yeah. about it and I'm like, you know, that that's where it is. And you look at Mikey Williams, you look at, you know, every, you, you know, you go back to Zion when he was in high school, what his value would have been with mm -hmm. uh, worth. You, you look at the ball family, what their worth is. And it, it's, it's always been there. And I think there's always been ways to do it. It's just, let's bring it to the forefront and let the people get what they deserve. I, I'm all for it. You know, I, I think I, I've always thought that college basketball should adopt more of a, a OHL perspective where, you know, you, you could you could be playing college basketball, be drafted by an NBA team, and and then if you don't make the roster, go back to college basketball. You just lose your scholarship, but you've got a paycheck that could pay for that to go right. back and play. Uh, versus you know all these kids going back into you know the G League or just being out because I, I think every year there's a lot of kids that make great decisions, and and every year there's a lot of kids that enter that draft for clout and clout only. Right. And I think the Supreme Court of the United States made sure that NCAA stopped penalizing these kids for trying to exercise their options. They, they should have. They've earned those options. And when you look at overtime elite, not only giving the kids the money, you know, the, the two kids from Florida who just signed for a couple of million dollars over the next two years, plus they get the $50,000 for their, their college education right. if they want that, right? Yeah. Arizona State. Is part of the G League process with G League Ignite. Jalen Green, who's never going to go to school, made six hundred thousand dollars playing a couple of games last year. If he wanted to go to college, he could. Yeah, having those options means a lot, and and the fact that there's no no longer a monopoly on these young people and their intellectual property because that's what this is. Yeah, is a, a great thing. Right. Oh, it's a, it's amazing, and and when you look at it, I, I always argue this: if if you grew up and, and you're an amazing computer programmer, you're, you're an app developer and you're 18 years old and Apple wants to hire you, you're going to get hired by Apple. If, if you're right. an amazing basketball player at 18 years old, you got to go to college and you, you know, it, it, it's, you know, you got a scholarship, you got that. No, it's, it's not the same. Your value could drop in college. It goes back to what, what we said, if your hype and, and your game fits what the NBA is looking for as an 18 or 19 year old coming out of high school, then that's your job. Go right. do it. Don't, you know, I don't think there should be those, those in between rules that dictate how someone else makes money before you can. Well, I mean, that's an age old conversation that has a lot of tentacles to it. First and foremost, in a, for a lot of people, how race has to do with these revenue generating sports, and the bodies that help to generate not only the television packages and the super conferences and whatever the case might be, but the championships and the $10 million a year coaches yeah. while the players eat ramen noodles or freeze at home like Jalen Rose talked about or Shabazz Napier talked about when he was at UConn and they just won a championship. These kinds of things may no longer happen. But, you know, you talked about that date before. Uh, NCAA is like, OK, you use my facilities. I need my taste. We're going to figure out a way to get some of that money because we can't lose this revenue and the assets we had that we were, had in control before. But I'm going to upset you a little bit. Hurt your feelings a little bit, coach. I'm letting you know in advance. It's all right. Because I'm about to ask you to give me your all-time CIA bounce starting five by position. Oh, <laughs> 
Oh, you know what I'm <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, look, look. They shouldn't take it personally because it's tough. It's a tough question. I asked that for a reason. But I'd love to hear your 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 uh, top five lineup. You, you know what? It, it's tough, but I, I think within reason. I think you know selfishly, and and I think based on his results, I'd, I'd put Tyler at the one. Okay. Uh, because I think he'll get the ball to everyone that needs to get it. I'd put Jamal Murray at the two. Okay. Um, and let those two kind of run off each other. I would put at the three Andrew Wiggins. Okay. At the four spot, this this is probably the spot that's going to hurt a lot of people's feelings, but I think I put Dylan Brooks at the four spot. I knew you were going to do that. (laughs) You know, he's just Dylan Brooks. I've always said this. I love him to death, but he he has he has the mentality of a, a excuse my language an asshole. That's right. needed to to do his job, and right. he doesn't care what anyone thinks, and that's that's what makes him highly successful. No doubt. And and at the five spot, it, it would it would obviously be a toss up between Tristan Thompson and, and Anthony Bennett, and, and I'm still rocking with my guy Anthony Bennett because I, I you know I think everyone's situation and and uh, what they encounter is different. I think he was drafted injured, didn't get a real chance in Cleveland. I think that put him into a, a certain spot where he never got to be himself. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, obviously traded by LeBron uh, to, to Minnesota. <laughs> with Wiggins. All right. Uh, um, you know, and, and then there, you know, I, I think was pretty injury prone and just never got to be, uh, you go back and look at him in college and, and he was a beast, mm. um, you know, but, but then I say a toss up because Tristan Thompson at the five spot, sets hella good screens. He does his job. He rebounds the crap out of the basketball. And, and we need we need a lot of second chance with, with the guys we have. So I think Tyler at the one, Jamal at the two, Wiggins at the three, Dylan Brooks at the four, and, and Bennett or Tristan at the five. I'm going to tell you something about Jamal Murray real quick before we go. I was the BioSteel game his senior year. You know the BioSteel game, everybody's trying to show. I was the all-star game. Mm-hmm. Showing out, and, and he took over in the second half. But what I saw at halftime told me he was a pro before the rest of those guys. Now at halftime, the rest of the kids are like talking to their friends and family in the, in the crowd, and they're doing dunk contest stuff at halftime. Jamal Murray was on the bike, looking at stats and talking to the coach about what he can do better in the second half of an all-star game. I watched that whole transaction. I'm like, he's a pro already, and you can see like, when you talk about walking to the gym, you can tell a guy looks like he's game ready. What he talked about and what, what I could overhear and what they saw he implemented in the second half, became game MVP. You see what he's done. Hopefully he's recovering from his injury and getting ready for the new year. But before I go, if you could play one-on-one against anyone in the history of the game, not with a last name Ennis, who would it be and why? Michael Jordan. Why? I, I think I, I just, you know, we hear and I – Obviously, I'm old enough that I got to see his his career play out. Um, but through the stories and and like the the personal stories of how big of a competitor he was, and you know, I, I talked to Dickie Simpkins, who you know sat in a locker beside Michael Jordan for years, and you know, Michael Jordan would wait for him to start tying his shoes and then try to beat him at tying his shoes. And and it's right. like every aspect of his life, I, I just I'd, I'd want to see it in person and and experience you know playing against him and see how big of a, a competitor he truly is. And I mean, at the end of the day, throw some bets in there and see if he could, uh, you know, <laughs> take some from him. But, 
I, I definitely, uh, you know, I, I think Michael Jordan, uh, first and foremost, because, um, you know, him, and then and close second would be Colby, obviously, yeah. you know, for, for the fact that, that that would be something that, you know, you'd, you'd live and, and, and understand forever. And, and I still, I look at Colby, you know, my son's first NBA play was he, he subbed into his very first game uh, with the Phoenix Suns, and, and he had a jump ball against Kobe Bryant. And <laughs> I think, you know, with everything that happened with Kobe, I think that's a, a memory that, you know, both myself and, and Tyler will probably say, like, man, hey, I, my first play in the NBA was a jump ball against Kobe Bryant. Right. right. You know, that's something you tell your kids about later when they ask you who's Kobe. Well, let people know where they can find you, man. Uh, you can find me on uh, IG at, at the Tony Mac Show, uh, on Twitter at BounceTTCAU, uh, and, uh, you know, at Orangeville Prep every single day trying to get, get these kids scholarships. And, uh, you know, we have an amazing group of guys that are coming up. And, you know, I, I think we're, we'll, we'll be back at the draft, uh, you know, with my man Matthew Alexander Moncrief next year and a couple of the other guys from the Bounce program. And, couple of young boys uh, you know we talked about Mikey Williams but we we have a young one uh up at Orangeville right now Jalik Dunkley distant that uh you know he's on that level 42 inch vertical jumps out of the gym could play I, I think he he's got the possibility you know if he keeps going down this road to be a top five pick out of high school so we wow. we might avoid all that college discussion but we'll see how it goes well there's been no competition here because you've been a great guest sir Tony I appreciate you coach and we'll talk soon Thank you. Appreciate you, too. It is now winning time on the open run with Will Strickland. I want to thank Coach Tony McIntyre for coming through and shedding a lot of light on what it's like to go through draft night, what it is to be an AAU coach in today's new landscape with the NIL rules and everything else, and what it takes to be a family man like he is doing what he loves. Thank you again, coach, for coming on and doing your thing, sir. As we get into the news, views, and truths that you choose on the NBA and beyond, it is now official. Maria Taylor has left ESPN. They slid her an underwhelming $3 million a year deal across the table. And President Jimmy Pitaro showed for whom he's willing to fight and whom he's easily and readily allowing to walk away. They chose you who they're willing to fight for, who's been silenced temporarily. But she'll be back. Rachel Nichols will be back. Maria Taylor's going on. Did she get $5 million, $8 million from NBC? I don't know, but she's there. She had her deal in place. She knew they were going to lowball her, whatever the case might be. Is that a bad term to use? I shouldn't have said that. She pretty much knew they were going to give her an underwhelming offer. Had another offer on the table. She left. Congratulations. And onward and upward, Miss Taylor. Shouts out to Malik Rose, who could be the next NBPA executive director. As the groundbreaking Michelle Roberts has now reached the age of 65. She's like, I should be retired on the beach somewhere. The search is on for the next person to run the association. And it looks like Malik Rose is going to be that guy. A 13-year veteran in the NBA was most recently the assistant GM in Detroit for the Pistons and the VP of player operations for the NBA. A good deal of his career spent in San Antonio under Greg Popovich. So there's some pedigree and there's some history. But congratulations and good luck to Malik Rose. WNBA commissioner 
Kathy Engelbert is talking NBA expansion. And I like that. As I was talking to Coach after we were done with the interview, and as you guys may or may not have heard me speak on this issue, I cannot wait until the first female college basketball player decides that she wants to go and challenge the hardship rule, where she's ready and she feels like she's ready and she's physically able to deal with the rigors of being a professional athlete. She should have the opportunity to play. All these rules are in place that restrict these women from doing what they want to do with their careers. But hopefully, as the WNBA expands, they also get rid of some stuff too. Addition by subtraction. And that rule, get it out of here. But the teams they're talking about, the cities they're talking about right now, Charlotte, which had a franchise back in the day called The Sting. My man Gilbert McGregor and I were talking about that last week on episode 33. Houston, the Comets, the first dynasty in the league. Will they bring the Comets back? I hope so. I was in Houston, around Houston for a lot of that and love what the ladies brought to basketball in that city. Philly, Philadelphia, I don't know, could be a spot. And last but not least, Toronto, which I think they have the infrastructure to do it. They have the front office to do it. They have the people who know what to do with it. I think that Toronto is one of those next spots. I wanted to do a draft preview show, but I think it's probably going to be best if I do that on Thursday with some guys from this podcast called Below the Hardwood, as we did with the Eastern and Western Conference playoff previews, and do something there because right now in this draft for me is Cade Cunningham, Evan Mobley, the kid from USC, Jalen Green from G League Ignite, Jalen Suggs from Gonzaga. After that, it's crapshoot. There's some sleepers for sure. If you have some ideas, want to throw some at me, you know where to reach me on my socials. Let me know. We're going to get that together for you on Thursday this week as the NBA draft goes on Thursday, July 29th. Also can't wait to talk about summer leagues after the NBA draft. Whether you're at the Drew League watching Isaiah Thomas drop 37 and people still clamoring that he should get an NBA job, let it go. That part is probably done. Or the South Carolina Pro-Am. My man Kerry Rich, PJ Dozier of the Denver Nuggets, Sundarius Thornwell from the Orlando Magic, Jarrell Brantley from the Utah Jazz. They're all there playing with some of the best talent that the University of South Carolina has in a lot of schools around the area. Wake Forest, Winthrop, some smaller schools. I saw a kid from Anderson that I think is really nice. Plays a lot like Kyle Lowry. Just a lot of talent coming out there and was able to see those guys play this past weekend. But the NBA headed out to Vegas, Summer League in Orlando. You're going to get a chance to see some of these guys who get drafted and see them right away, what they can do. I'm looking forward to this. As a matter of fact, one high-profile summer league person, LaJello Ball, going to play for the Charlotte Hornets. LeVar Ball, Michael Jeffrey Jordan. Well, you know Mike's not going to be out there unless he's gambling. But that's a whole other conversation. What I want to do a thing on sibling, like the best sibling duos or trios in league history. And I'm not just talking about the NBA. It could be WNBA. It could be, you know, a combination of the NBA and, and WNBA. You never know. I'm going to find out who those are. I'm going to list them. We're probably going to have a little contest. See what that's about. I'm going to list that next week. I have a feeling that's what I'm going to do. Because as much as people talk about the Ball brothers, then Tintacumpo brothers all have championship rings now. And from what I understand, they have scored the most points in NBA Finals history and brothers combined. I did the math. You do the knowledge. Find out. Next week, family ties. Best siblings in history of the game. I want to talk a little Chris Paul and the Phoenix Suns because they were great combatants in the NBA Finals. But 
as the executive director of the NBPA, the National Basketball Players Association, as a man who can opt out of a $44 million plus contract to re-sign and get an extension with Phoenix or go somewhere else. I think he stays in Phoenix. He's incentivized to play in Phoenix. He's, I think it's, it's good for him to stay in Phoenix. Will James Jones put that much money into a 37-year-old point guard? Who is, for lack of a better term, pretty injury prone and normally during the time it counts the most? He's the first person to lose a series after being up 2-0, and he did it on four different occasions, including the NBA Finals this year. The Suns have a lot of upside, a lot of experience now, definitely a destination stop for players looking for a place to play under a great coach in Monty Williams, with a leader in Chris Paul who has a style that rubs a lot of people the wrong way, but the results are there. He's won everywhere he's been. But one guy in particular that I was thinking about was Jay Crowder. The only person on the floor that had finals experience at all has now lost two straight NBA finals. Now, I'm not saying he's Eric Snow just quite yet, but, you know, he's on the verge. If Jay Crowder makes it to the finals again and loses, then he'll be Eric Snow. He'll be an Eric Snow all-star. If you don't know, Eric Snow was on the 1996 Seattle Supersonics team that lost to Michael Jordan and the Bulls. He was on the 2001 team in Philly when the Sixers went to the finals against the L.A. Lakers. They lost that series too. And in 2007, guess who was the point guard for your Cleveland Cavaliers? You guessed it, Eric Avalanche. I'm sorry, Eric Snow. So Jay Crowder, you don't want to be in that company. Watch yourself. A little further west is a place called Los Angeles, where it is rumored that Kyle Lowry, L.A. native, DeMar Darnell DeRozan, and Spencer Dinwiddie want to make themselves Lakers. Strengthen that run to go forward, and people are calling that, again, a super team. I didn't realize Spencer Dinwiddie was so good and so super for all the all-star teams he's made and all everything. I stopped. At any rate, it's just rumors. We won't know until free agency hits. Free agency might not even be a problem. The real problem, the pressing problem, before we get out of here, is the potential end of American exceptionalism in basketball. If you've been watching the Olympics, the opening round of pool play, Team USA, who everyone said, oh, we shouldn't panic. They lost two exhibition games, two friendlies against Nigeria and Australia. Shouldn't worry. Once they get to the Olympics, they'll put it all together. <laughs> Guess not. As they lost in their first game, 83-76, to to the French team. Now, these guys have NBA experience, and Evan Fournier probably played the best game of his life. And again, I talked about this last week with Gilbert on the podcast, where these guys who play for their national teams have a different level of freedom for the national teams that they don't have in their NBA teams. Evan Fournier was never the man on any team in the NBA. Apparently, he's the man in France right now. No more Tony Parker. You got Rudy Gobert. You got guys who used to play in the NBA. You have a, a lot of players on that French team. They've played together for years. They understand what they're going to do. They understand all the NBA sets. They stunned on a lot of those sets in the game that I saw. And the U.S. had a chance to win the game. But when you have arguably the greatest player on the planet right now, did I just wink when I said that? Kevin Wayne Durant going 4 for 12, scoring the least points he'd ever scored in his 17 games as an Olympian. And Dame Lillard going 3 for 10, not going to get it done. First time they've lost since 2004 when Team USA lost to Argentina. And it broke a 25-game losing strike. What's next? Is this the beginning of the new world order in basketball? Newsflash, that's been going on for a while. The world is catching up. 
There's no more signing autographs at halftime and taking pictures and being awestruck because these guys play in the NBA against Kevin Durant, against Dame, against Zach Levine, Drew Holiday, Chris Milton, who should be given applause for showing up for the Olympics after a grueling NBA Finals and dance of their championship. They want to get some more glory. Kudos to them. The good thing about this U.S. loss is that they're probably going to beat the two teams in their pool they have to beat to make it to the medal round. We'll see. But you don't have to worry about who's going to win bronze, silver, or gold because you're listening to the podcast that set the gold standard where basketball and life are one. It is the open run with Will Strickland. So until next week, do what's popular with the population. Make sure you don't get beat off the dribble and keep listening. My man, Rich Kid, it's that time, champ. Do what you do. Easy.